can pray for him a bit better and find a bit more out about him. Okay, so Pete, <clears throat> what do you spend the time doing in your working week? Um, so I'm going I'm to go back a bit, actually. This is, this is, I, I was tidying up recently because our house is becoming a bit cluttered. So um, we did some tidying up and we were throwing a load of stuff away and I found some of my first circuit diagrams for sound mixers that I started doing when I was 12. <laughs> and they've all gone in the bin. <laughs> so that's very, uh, that's very good of me. Um, so um, I, I, do, um, I work for a, a company in Australia who, um, who make... Um, Equipment for YouTubers. Who, who knows what a YouTuber is? One person. Oh, not enough people. So if you imagine the BBC, and that's lots of television channels, isn't it? So on YouTube, um, lots of people like you and Gordon and Andy and Roger, they can all have their own YouTube channel, like a BBC television channel, and they can just put programmes out on it. And that's what YouTube allows people to do. And they, can have, they have their cameras and they have their microphones. And, and they produce a, a recording, a broadcast that people can watch. And some of these YouTubers have got 10 million people who watch their programs all around the world, which is, which is quite amazing. Anyway, my company makes microphones and, and sound mixers and cables and stands and... Who can remember during lockdown when all the BBC reporters had those long poles with microphones on the end? Right, my company made those. Um, they had road written all over them, that's how I knew. <laughs> um, so I work for that company and I do software. So I do software. So you imagine a piece of equipment which has got knobs and buttons on it. It tends to have software inside it and that's the kind of software that I write. Not software for computers. So... That's Brilliant, thank you. And Pete, <clears throat> how does you being a Christian inform, impact your working week? Um, so I started working for Road during lockdown. And the reason I started for working for Road during lockdown was because I'd learnt all about broadcasting during lockdown. I had not done any of it before. I'd worked in the television industry for years, but I hadn't done any actual real live broadcasting and to do our broadcasting here I had to learn about it um, so I learned about it and then changed jobs during during lockdown and went to work for this company and the reason I got the job was because I'd learnt about broadcasting here so if I hadn't learnt about broadcasting for doing here I wouldn't have been and, and part of my interview was telling them that I'd been doing broadcasting here for a year so it's the way God kind of leads us into into um, different jobs through changing circumstances and I wouldn't have expected to have been doing that. In fact, I can remember about five years previously that I applied for a job to do something similar and as soon as I started doing it, I realised it wasn't for me. So, <laughs> so we all change. Um, so part of my interview process was to tell them about my, what I've been doing at church. So all the people who interviewed me knew that I was a Christian um, and... When I started working, part of the reason that I was employed was to actually kind of help them to kind of like produce this product that will do the job they want it to do. So my experience from a year of or two of broadcasting has been really helpful in that respect. So, 
So everyone knows that I'm a Christian. So that's, uh, um, that's, that's, that's good because often in the company it's very difficult to kind of start to introduce the fact that you're a Christian um, without sounding high and mighty or something. So just by just saying, this is what I do on Sundays and this is how I've learned what I've learned, it's been a really good opening. Um, whether that actually leads to anything, who knows, because God's got the plan for what the effect I have on people's lives. So I, I don't know where that's going to go. But Thank you, Pete. So um, we're obviously not asking you to declare any embarrassing details here, but, um, <laughs> but what, what would you say is one of your challenges in life um, that we might pray about? I was, talk, I, was talking to, I was talking about this to Joe, and it's quite, it's quite difficult to kind of come up with an answer to that. Well, for me, anyway. Um, at the moment, the age I am, I'm starting to think about retirement. Sounds horrible. Um, um, <laughs> so it's kind of like, what am I going to do in retirement? And it's not for a couple of years yet, so um, I've still got time to think about it. But that's a, that's a challenge, not knowing, what, not knowing what's going to happen in the future, so... uh, Right, thank you very much. I'm just going to pray for Pete. Lord, we thank you for Pete. We thank you for his servant heart. We thank you that he's used his gifts for our good, for for Glendale Church, so that we can function better. We thank you that you took him into this new job and you gave him the opportunity to tell people that he's a Christian. And Lord, we pray for him now. We pray for him as he begins to think about the next stage of his life. We pray that he will be able to continue to trust you, that you've got that in your hands. We ask that you will bless him, that you will prosper him in everything he puts his hand to. We pray for him in work, at home, in his family, in his social groupings. Dear Lord, we just pray that your hand of blessing will be on him. In Jesus' name. And let's just continue praying a little bit. Lord, we pray for others of ourselves within our church. We thank you for Julie being here this morning. Lord, we pray for her. We thank you. So we're travelling through the 12 minor prophets um, from the Hebrew Bible, our Christian Old Testament. And this morning we're looking at Obadiah. I've put as the title, verse 21, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. The kingdom will be the Lord's. Obadiah is the shortest book of the Old Testament. Um, Put up your hand if you know this book. Okay, so a few people um, know it. It's the shortest book of the Old Testament and um, It raises questions, and if you um, read it quite uh, quickly, um, you might think, what's the relevance of this for us? Has it really got a message, this? 
Um, I sort of asked Liz this, and she says, why don't you leave it out? Because <laughs> it's in our Bible, and it's part of our series. We've got to do it. And that's one very, very good reason in church life for doing what we call consecutive Bible teaching, however we do it. You have to tackle everything that comes into your path. Uh, and, and there are things that you wouldn't choose to do. I don't think anybody, I'd be surprised if anybody would choose to speak from Obadiah if they were asked to choose a subject to speak about. But I've got it. And I deliberately took it. So why is it part of the Bible? Is it relevant for us? Let's see. So um, we're just going to start with a a bit of background um, that I think is essential. The patriarchs, the sort of um, forefathers of the faith, um, Christian faith, um, Judaism, the faith of Israel, and as far as Abraham's concerned, but it stops there, um, Islam. So Abraham was the recipient of God's covenant promise that all the peoples of the world would be blessed through his seed. We listen to that promise. It becomes for us. And that covenant promise that God made with Abraham was passed on to his son, Isaac. And Isaac was the father of Esau and Jacob. I thought it was falling down. (laughs) Thanks, Liz. Um, That's so you can see. Yeah, great. I can stand to the side. No, I can't. Um, So, Esau and Jacob were the twin sons of Isaac. And we talk about Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in Christian faith. And that's what um, the Jews talk about as well, Israel. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Really important, the three patriarchs. And Jacob's name became Israel, and he had 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel, of whom really only Judah and Benjamin would left, and then you get the nickname Jews, because they were from Judah. Esau took on the name of Edom. So both of these guys, these twins sort of became nations. Jacob and Esau then were twin brothers. They were the sons of Isaac and Rebekah, and therefore the grandsons of Abraham, as you can see. They were also bitter enemies. Their conflict began in the womb of their mother, Rebekah, who was told, two nations are in your womb. And two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other. And the elder will serve the younger. Out of order for the culture of these people. You read that in Genesis 25. Now, um, I had... um, Experience from time to time in school of having um, siblings in the school. 
Siblings um, will often have quarrels and fights. And, um, you know, we'll, you, you'll know this if your parents have more than one child. And um, within school, I saw it. Sometimes it was quite um, sad. But I can't really remember any example of siblings who, when one of them was being harmed, attacked, or whatever, by somebody else, failed to become very vicious in the defence of their sibling. It happened again and again and again. You would always know that you don't mess with without getting involved, even though they seem to have squabbles all of the time. It wasn't like that with these two boys, even though they were twins. Esau was born first, but Jacob came out hanging on to his brother's heel. Esau loves the outdoor life. He's impulsive, he's headstrong, and he's wild. He shows that he's not much interested in the God of his grandfather and father. And he's not much interested in that covenant promise of eternal blessing for all nations. Probably because he just doesn't think about it. He's got his mind on other things that he thinks are more important. So he's a compulsive man of action. And one day he returns from his hunting famished. And his brother is making a fantastic stew. And Esau begs his brother Jacob to give him some of his stew. And Jacob sees an opportunity. He offers his brother a bowl in exchange for the birthright. All the privileges that go with being the firstborn, including being the inheritor, the heir of the great promise that God had made to his grandfather. It's massive. It's absolutely massive. It's almost cosmic. And Esau agrees. He takes the bowl of stew and gives Jacob all the honour and blessing that was his. So Jacob becomes the heir to the eternal promise of God. And of course, Esau bitterly regrets it. And he becomes rebellious and vengeful. He marries against his parents' approval. And his descendants live in constant bitterness, hostility and violence towards their Israelite cousins. All those who come from Jacob. And I don't know whether how many of you know this, but the last descendant of Esau mentioned in the Bible is King Herod, the cruel puppet king of Judea, serving Rome 
when Jesus was born. Yes, he was a Jew, but his father was an Edomite who married a Jewess. Interesting. Here's a map, and the map shows you um, Israel stretching up to Syria. Judah um, is around Jerusalem, so Jerusalem is the capital city of Judah. It doesn't mention Judah, it's a bit of a shame on that map. It should be where Israel is, and then Israel should be up in the north. Though it is all Israel, it was all Israel at that time. Um, sorry, it wasn't all Israel in the time of, of Jacob, but at the time when this um, map is like this. And here's Eden, to the south of Israel. It's a mountainous area. And uh, you will note that Petra is a very important city in Edom. It's a fantastic tourist attraction today. Just amazing. Now I'm going to read Obadiah with, with a little comment. So I'm going to read it all through and it's not going to be on the screen because you're going to have pictures on the screen. Okay? So if you want to follow the text, you need to find Obadiah in your Bible. It's a bit difficult because you think you haven't got it because it's only one page. My Bible hasn't got Obadiah. It has probably, unless somebody ripped it out. Okay? So you can find Obadiah if you want to follow the text. But I'll read it and uh, there will be pictures. And it goes like this. The vision of Obadiah. This is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. Now down to verse 10, we have a judgment pronounced on the proud and arrogant nation of Edom, the descendants of Esau. You can find this more or less exactly as it is here in Obadiah in Jeremiah chapter 49. That raises very interesting questions about which came first and so on. But those are sort of theological things that we're just not interested in here. You can also hear an echo of this in Psalm 137, which was famously made into a number one hit pop song by the waters of Babylon sat down and wept. So to continue in verse 1. We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, Rise, let us go against her, that's against Edom, for battle. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights. You who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, From there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. 
If thieves came to you, if robbers in the night, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? But how Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged, as your allies will force you to the border, your friends will deceive and overpower you, those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. In that day, says the Lord, Will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, those of understanding in the mountains of Esau? Your warriors, T-men, will be terrified, and everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter because of the violence against your brother Jacob. You will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. The next verses, 11 to 14, describe the appalling behaviour of Esau, Eden, to the Jews as they are being taken into Babylon when Nebuchadnezzar overthrows Jerusalem in 586. I sort of have a feeling that Obadiah could well have been in the crowd that was taken exile into Babylon. And here is where Judah needs his twin brother, Edom, to come in support. This is what happened On the day you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem. You, you were like one of them. You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune. Nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction. Nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster. Nor gloat over them in their calamity in the day of their disaster nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of trouble. The next two verses pronounce... 
judgment on all nations that act with injustice and oppression. Verse 15. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. Just as you drank on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they had never been. Interesting to note how judgment comes, not actually from God, is it, in those words. It's come from themselves. And now, in the next few verses, we have a description of God's people taking responsibility for ruling the earth. Verse 17. But on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy. And Jacob will possess his inheritance. Jacob will be a fire And Joseph, a flame. Esau will be stubble. And they will set him on fire and destroy him. There will be no survivors from Esau. The Lord has spoken. People from the Negev will occupy the mountains of Esau. People from the foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will occupy the fields of Ephraim and Samaria, and Benjamin will possess Gilead. This company of Israelite exiles who are in Canaan will possess the land as far as Zarephath. The exiles from Jerusalem who are in Shepharad will possess the towns of the Negev. Deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau. And the kingdom will be the Lord's. So, does this little book have any relevance for us? Does it have anything to teach us? 
Here are some suggestions. <coughs> Firstly, Scripture expresses the full range of human experience and emotions. It's quite wonderful how he does that. It's one of the reasons that the Bible is such acclaimed literature. Scripture shows anger against all evil. Anger against pride. Anger against injustice. Anger against oppression. Anger against violence. And so on. Scripture shows us that God is holy. And it shows us that his righteous anger and his judgments always spring from his love. And to a great extent, it shows that the sort of judgments of God are the returns received as a result of the sin that is committed. And interestingly, there's room for debate about this. It's just great to have these sorts of debates, I think. I'm putting this out here. In a book like Obadiah, you can have a very interesting discussion as to whether Obadiah is the one who's feeling so angry and some of the expressions that are coming out are more expressive of the way that Obadiah's feeling. And that opens up a very interesting and, I think, important debate. And I think it's important because outside there will be people who are raising questions and we need to listen to what they're saying and be able to have decent discussions with them so that we can show that our faith is relevant and that the Bible does speak today. That's number one. Just scripture expressing the whole range of human emotions. I love it. Number two, I'm going to ask a question. Aren't we sometimes angry at evil? I certainly feel angry at evil at times. We've just seen pictures of migrants fleeing situations. We have Alem sitting here with us from Eritrea. We have a group of people meeting here on Friday afternoons that come and are representing most of the places that we saw on the screen. It's difficult for us to explore their experiences because of the language barrier and because we don't necessarily want to raise all those emotions and feelings in them. If we could, we would feel angry. It's okay. 
that's okay. But what do we do with our anger? What do we do with our frustration? It is so easy for anger to spill over into sin. Paul warns, in your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. Ephesians 4, 26. In Romans he says, do not repay evil for evil. For as far as possible, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And this is coming from the pen of someone who has come to follow Jesus Christ. And we often say, we look at the Hebrew Bible, our Christian Old Testament, through the lens of Christ and the cross. So what should we do with our anger? Now some of you will know that the Greeks developed the idea of catharsis. I'm just going to tell you what catharsis is. I think it's really important. Catharsis is a process of being healed, and I'm going to use another word, vicariously, by putting your stuff onto something else. The Greeks, the Greek poets, wrote the most horrendous plays. It's possible that some of you have been to see a Greek play. They show them at Bradfield College. They were horrendous. They are horrendous. They're horrendous for the violence, the sex. It's just really terrible. It all hangs out there. But there was an idea behind this in the poet's minds. Because those Greek plays that have stood the test of time, they come to a resolution at the end. Just like Obadiah does with that one line. The kingdom will be the Lord's. And we go... And if you watch a Greek play, you might walk out in the middle, you might say we shouldn't go, but when you get to the end, it will be resolved, and you will walk out of that Greek theatre feeling as though all the weight and burden of your stuff has been left on the stage with those actors. And Shakespeare does it in his histories and his tragedies. If you go to see a Shakespeare history, it's hardly bearable. If you go to see a tragedy, it's much more bearable. But it has the same idea. You watch this stuff acted out on the stage and you come out feeling released and relieved and better. It's sort of vicarious. You've put your stuff on them. It really works. The Greeks knew it. But the Hebrews knew it before them. I haven't got time to read Psalm 137, which was made into a pop song. It ends by saying, Oh, that your babies were slapped against a rock. 
That's the anger that is being felt over the exile into Babylon. It's more extreme than Obadiah. And you read it, and if you read it with stuff that you are feeling, you will feel that you've worked that out, if you can do that. And it takes a bit of imagination. It takes good reading. So I'm saying that Obadiah, Psalm 137, are brilliant examples of literature which has can have a cathartic effect, helping the reader to work out their anger and to find relief and peace. That is a fantastic use of scripture. Loads of people who have no faith use scripture like that, especially the Psalms. I've heard people talk about it. We often don't get the benefit because we don't read those things. And we don't read them in public. It's a shame. We avoid it in our churches. It doesn't feel right. Number three. We must remind ourselves that God has now defeated evil through taking it on himself in Christ. Now this is not a Greek play. This is an act in history. But it has that sort of effect only far more powerfully. God defeats evil by taking it all onto himself. Isaiah 53 expresses it best, I think. But other scriptures do. God takes on all the most ugly stuff that you can think of in the world on himself. And through his shameful death on the cross, we can be justified and become children of God with the promise that we will rule with him in the new heaven and new earth when he sets up his eternal kingdom of love, peace and joy. And in that atonement, that act of sacrifice, in which there's the possibility of justification, Christ is taking our stuff, and it's like, It's vicarious, that word again, which happens in the cathartic acts of the dramatic on the play, on the stage. We put all of our stuff onto Christ and we are crucified with him and it is dealt with. It's dealt with. And we hang on to it and we trust him and we bring him our stuff. And we're not afraid to, because there's nothing that we can do that is too bad that it can't be laid and hasn't already been laid on Christ. And as we come in repentance and faith, 
There are so many that have literally experienced the feeling that baggage is dropping off their lives. It's the most amazing thing and it's not just cathartic. It's for real. So that's Obadiah. A few thoughts on. And I'm just going to finish as... Joe and Pete come up, and Liz can come up as well, with the first and the last words of Obadiah, which is so beautiful. The sovereign Lord has spoken, and the kingdom will be the Lord's.